Hey, this Realm of the Mist podcast is brought to you proudly by the Nurses Guild. Hi, this is Eddie Deason. You're listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall. I was Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory. Ha 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 ha. What's up, guys? Chris Ristali back for another Breaking the Fourth Wall, and I'll tell you what, I am excited, excited for this one. I've gotten a chance earlier to talk to one of this man's cohorts uh, a couple weeks ago, and now for the 45th anniversary of Jaws, I get to sit there, and also October, it's Halloween month, so I get to talk to one of the men who is responsible not only for the shark, but the third movie of Jaws. And also so many other great movies, including Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Joe Alves. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah, it's, it's nice. Nice weather. It's not so hot here. But hey, you can, LA, like it has been, so it's cooled off. It's good. It's been weird here. Uh, it, it's been uh, 75 degrees during a day and 46 at night, it's, which is weird for October in Philadelphia. So. I mean, we had a summer with 120 degrees in LA. It was un- unbelievable. Oh my God. So I'm glad yeah, well, that's over. <clears throat> Good Lord. Well, let, let's, let's start, let's start at the beginning. You are, uh, first and foremost, uh, if, if I've done my history correctly, you, you, you started off pretty much as a, uh, designer, uh, special effects designer. Is that correct? No, actually I, I started when I was 19, uh, in uh, special effects at Walt Disney uh, as an assistant animator. And I did uh, the id for a movie called Forbidden Planet. Then I transferred into live action. And at that time, if you wanted to be in the art department, you start off as a, because it was the studio system and everybody had their own people. So you start off as a, a junior set designer or a junior camera loader or a junior editor. And then you work your way up to a senior. And then if you're fortunate, you can make the transition from a set designer to an art director, uh, which is the same thing as a production designer. And that's the transition that I made. And then also to director. Now, I, I, from, from my movie histories themselves, especially because I'm a, a Spielberg and, and Lucas uh, enthusiast, uh, I know during the time that you were breaking in was kind of the time where Hollywood was doing that transition from hollywood moguls to corporations uh, in the 70s yes when you were when you were breaking in what uh and, and going through those steps those processes uh was that more of the influence of the corporations or was that the uh the last stand of the mo- uh, moguls and how hollywood worked before corporations took over well you you know you you had the system uh six major studios and they controlled everything mm-hmm. uh I would say with Coppola, uh, Godfather, uh, independent directors became more important. Now, when we're talking about Spielberg or Lucas, uh, you know, I started with Steven in television on the okay. series called Night Gallery, and then we did a, a few others. And, and then his first movie was Sugarland Express and then Jaws. But he didn't have the power then. He got the power came when Jaws went from a movie that the studio wasn't really quite sure they wanted to make. They tried to cancel it a few times. They thought three or four million dollar shark movie, and then it became the biggest grossing picture of the time. Right. So now you have that importance, and then you know, of course, we did Close Encounters, and then you have Lucas doing Star Wars. So those individuals became more important than the studio. And so about that time, the studio system started to break down. Normally you got your job through the studio, like a department head, head of the art department would say, "Uh, Joe, you're gonna do this, you know, or you're gonna do that. Uh, And so that's how I got uh, Sugarland Express. Oh, uh, there's a young director, you worked with him on television, you're gonna do that. 
and and so the the transition you know changed and i would say uh, mid 70s now you, you mentioned you worked you worked with uh steve uh in in uh in television and then of course in his first movie and then of course we come to the all-important 45th anniversary jaws right now i've got to you know i've got to ask this especially since you were one of the designers of bruce the shark and of course it's legendary how how uh for lack of better term aggravating it was that the shark didn't work although it probably worked to the uh to the benefit of the, of the film since the shark wasn't in it as much as it was originally supposed to be. That's um, not true. That's not true. No. Oh, okay. Um, cause I, 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 I could show you that because for an example, in my book, I storyboarded every sequence with the shark. Okay. Everything I storyboarded, we got. Okay. I, I want to clarify that. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm correct if I'm wrong. <laughs> let me say that, that people say the shark didn't work. Well, if it didn't work, it certainly was pretty successful. The reason, basically, when I quickly, I started on the movie before Spielberg or any movie. David Brown sent me the galley sheets of the book and said, we think this might make an interesting movie. We have to sell it to the studio. Could you make some story uh, illustrations about that situation? Anyway, quickly. After I did about 30 illustrations, they're all in the book here. Uh, we had a meeting of all the department heads. Marshall Green was the head of production. And about that time, Spielberg was brought on. But before Stephen was brought on, he, he had a cabana there on the lot. And I would go to him and I would say, oh, I'm doing this. Wouldn't this be great? And we decided if we're going to do the movie, we're going to make a full-size shark, 25 feet, and not do it in the back lot against a phony backdrop. We're going to do it in the real ocean with a full-size shark. Never been done before. When I presented that to the department heads, Marshall Green, the head of production, turned to the effects people and said, can you make the shark? And they said, no, it's never been done. I mean, and if we did, it would take at least a year, year and a half to develop it. And besides, we've got more important movies like the Hindenburg. Right. And Marshall got a little upset and said, Jaws could be a bigger movie than the Hindenburg. And everybody laughed, of course it couldn't. Bottom line, as Everybody left. I was collecting my drawings. Marshall called me. He says, can you get the shark made? And, uh, you know, I, I said, well, I'll certainly try. He says, well, take it off the lot. That was never done before. Find independent people and do it. So I went to Joe Lombardi, who did your Godfather, big effects guy. Okay. He said, I, I'm, I'm too busy. He says, but that would take a year, year and a half to do because no one's ever developed or tested it. I went to Disney. They said they could do it, but they couldn't do it in the ocean. Uh, finally, I found Bob Maddie. All right, so by the time we got all this together, it was probably November of 73, okay? The book came out in February of 74, and the studio, because the book was so successful, the studio said, we're gonna start shooting this movie in two months. <laughs> and I, I'm in the ocean too, you know, and I had scouted, Martha's Vineyard, and it was very cold, and Stephen got him pushed back to three months, so we started in the first of May. Now, but Bob is making three sharks. We needed three sharks. We wanted to go left and right. We needed one on a big platform that we could engineer it to land on a boat. Right. So now, the year and a half didn't happen. We're talking about a few months. They finished, they were doing it in California. We've got the location in Martha's Vineyard. They shipped it there finished building them and trying to test them. So basically, we shot everything without the shark. Right. And we used the barrels. We didn't use the barrels because we didn't have the shark. We used the barrels, and they're in my early sketches, like a Hitchcock thing. Here's the barrel. Oh, he must be there. You know, so it's right. suspense. And so the reason she, Stephen didn't use the shark overuse it like they do in some of these shark movies now it's, it's for suspense like hitchcock wouldn't do it forever the shark's out there you know and then you see the barrel 
Or finally, when we got the shark working, I would go to Stephen and I would say, I think the left to right shark is working, Stephen. Uh, we'll try it. If, if, if it works, shoot it. If not, it's a test. And then right. we got the great shot of the shark moving by the boat and you say, oh my God, this thing. And I, and I was also told, Ron and Valerie Taylor, who did Blue Water, White Death, I talked to them a lot about the sharks and, and Valerie's looking at the test. For, she said, Joe, don't move the, the tail so much. These things are really big and they just sort of float along until they want to attack. So basically, I have to defend the shark for the reason it didn't have the year and a half. It had a few months. And, and when you see, if you ever look at the book, I storied about a couple hundred storyboards there. Uh, all the shark activity is there. And we would just, whenever we could get it, we'd mark off, you know, we were shooting towards the end. After we shot everything without the, without, without the shark, you know, the walk and talk. Right. And it was all shark. And it, then it started to perform. And, and then we got the shark uh, breaking through the cabin. We got the shark landing, eating quit. We got, you know, so it pretty well did everything we wanted it to do. I don't know what more, you know. Well, look, trust me, again, a lot of my, my, uh, my questions are based on documentaries that I've watched. So it doesn't necessarily mean that. Yeah, no, I know. I have is correct. But I, I, I do know that uh, some of the pneumatics of the shark uh, really had an issue with oh. the salt water and, of course, the... the, the Absolutely true. And, ...and stuff. And I, I wonder if the year and a half would have made a difference, in your opinion? Oh, yeah. Or... Because, yeah, because you're testing it. I mean, the point is, you, you have it in the water. Right. And you think you have all the electronics covered up. But somehow it gets in there. So it, it, in those tests, you would say, oh, my gosh, this isn't working. This valve's not working. And then you check it out and you realize it's because the salt water got in there. So maybe we have to find a different way to seal it. So you only know how to do that is by doing it, by testing it. And, and we didn't have that time. And so now we go, now we go forward besides, besides Jaws, you've worked uh, uh, with, uh, with everybody for Jaws 2 before taking director's chair for Jaws 3. Uh, first, the first question before we even get into Jaws 3 with, with 2 and, and 3, uh, did the shark work better, like during the time that you were setting up for the next movies? Obviously, I would imagine found better techniques and all that where the shark was a techn technically uh, less temperamental, I guess would be the correct choice of words. Well, we had an interesting situation. Uh, I, has, I was just finishing Close Encounters. Okay. And I realized, I heard that they were doing Jaws 2. And they hired this director. And, uh, but while I was on location uh, in Mobile, Alabama, I, there were some beautiful beaches there. And it was just gorgeous sand. And there were no boats out in the horizon. And the problem we had with Jaws was not just the shark, we had so many boats and I scouted it in the winter and there are no boats. And Stephen really wanted the sequence to be isolated. They were out by themselves. That's right. why Clint broke the radio. And then we've got all these boats in the summertime. And so it was, took so long to get the people to move the boats and some people. So that was one of the really strong delays. So I thought if we ever do Jaws 2, we should do all the water stuff in Florida. All right, I got back. They had a director, and what happened was this. As I said, we made the shark away from the studio. No studio influence. Cost about $250,000 for the whole thing. That's Jaws 2. expected it to be. Yeah, Jaws 2 is now, because Jaws is so, you know, huge, now it's at the studio, and they've already spent $2 million making a new shark, from the old one. Right. And the new director said, oh, I wanted to flip over and do all this stuff. And it was crazy. Uh, Bob Maddie was, was still on it, but there were a lot of people, studio guys on it, which didn't help a lot, uh, slowed things down. So basically, um, what happened in the long run, that first director, after a, a couple of days of shooting, a couple, he, he wasn't getting things done. And they fired him. Oof. And so 
they were going to close down the movie. And there was a director I worked with on Ninth Gallery. I worked with all these young directors on Ninth Gallery, John Badham and Janosh Work, was one that I thought was really, really clever. Uh, so I went to Verna Fields, who was now a vice president, and she had won the Academy Award for editing Jaws. And I says, I think before shutting down, we, you know, we need somebody that could start right now and not redo the movie because it's summer. We got to start shooting. And Juno right. could just pick it up. So uh, he was hired. And I ended up uh, being associate producer production. And I directed 80 days or so of second unit, a lot of the, the, the shark stuff that he didn't do. So uh, Jaws 2, the shark worked a lot. But the studio executives wanted so much Jaws. Now they figured, well, the more shark we put in there, the more, the better the movie will be. Uh, of course, that wasn't the case. Once they started editing, Verna was there, and and as you know, we start. We I saw so I shot so much shark. The kids in the rafts are breaking through and all that. So then we we cut it down. But the studio executives thought more shark, bigger movie. Right. Not the case, you know. So that that was two. That was a, the uh, the problems of two. And uh, Roy Scheider really didn't want to do the movie, uh, but he had a contract. So Jeno had problems with with the leading actor. But uh, other than that, and we did shoot all the water stuff in Florida. So other than little uh, water spouts and hurricanes, and uh, it was it was a beautiful location uh, in, near Pensacola. And now we now we jump into Jaws three. Uh, uh, this one this one is your baby. Um, at this point, with with the success of uh, the, the the monumental success of Jaws one, and I, I would call the relative success of Jaws two. Uh, like you said, I think I think uh, it would have probably that uh, eh, personal opinion. It probably would have benefited from a little less shark and a little more, like you said, the Hitchcockian. Uh, yeah, yeah, because look. that was the studio that really pushed more shark. But I actually enjoyed Jaws too. Um, I actually enjoyed Jaws three. Uh, I, I, um, but at at that point, were you nervous about even doing a Jaws three, or was this something always on your mind? Like I, I want to no. tell a story. I want to tell a third story. I, I was pretty well exhausted after that. But after Jaws two, I I pursued directing, and there I was. I used to race uh, Formula cars, and I was going to do a a movie about Grand Prix racing and I had scouted all over Europe for it and I was going to direct it. And Bill Gilmore was a production, was a producer. And he was a production manager on Jaws. So we had, we came back and the studio was sold to somebody else. So that was, that sort of died. But anyway, uh, the thing was Jaws 3, I was doing a movie uh, called The Ninja. Nerve Kirshner was a director, worked on it for six, seven months. Scottish Japan and everything. And then it was for Fox. And then Fox was bought by somebody and they canceled everything that wasn't shooting. Oh, wow. So I came back to the studio and I went to Verna's office. I always did to hang out. And she says, Joe, they were going to do this Jaws 3 People Zero. They were going to do a movie about the making fun of the movie Jaws. They were going to make fun of the people that made their biggest movie. It was sort of disgusting actually right and she said but then i think they stopped it for some reason maybe spielberg got some anyway she says there's this jaws 3 but but the studio didn't want to do it and alan landsberg was a television producer bought the rights to it okay so maybe you could go talk to him and uh and see about getting involved so i went to talk to alan and he was going to make this cheap shark we were using. I said, we're going to make a shark. Oh, no, no. I got a lot of stock footage of sharks and this and that. So he says, you want to produce it? I said, no, either I, I direct or I, I don't want to. He says, well, go scout the locations. You need a, a theme park, you, you know, uh, an ocean theme park. And uh, so I went with uh, Richard Matheson, the writer. And when we were scouting various places in Florida, there was this film and it was underwater uh, with, with the sea, you know, urchins and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was in 3D. And I came out and uh, Richard said, 3D, you're gonna do it in 3D? I said, no, 
Jaws 3D. We, you see Jaws 3D, it takes the onus off the third right. because they weren't doing a lot of sequels. You know, at that time they did Rocky 2 and 3, but sequels were not, let's say, looked upon as, as a good thing to do. Right. So I did, uh, it was a Thanksgiving holiday or whatever. I drew a shark and I did Jaws 3D coming at you, you know. Right. And I showed it to Landsberg and he got all excited and he said, let's take this to Universal. So we took it to Sid Scheinberg and he took the drawing and he said, oh, God, can, can I have this? I said, of course, you're the president of the studio. He <laughs> took it to Lou Wasserman. They came back and they said, okay, you're going to make the movie. You're going to direct the movie. And, but I got to tell you, Chris, I had no idea that they hadn't really done any new 3D equipment. Right. In, I mean, this was in the 782 and they did the House of Wax and stuff like that with the big cameras, but they hadn't really. So Landsberg said, uh, we're going to start shooting in October. I said, but we don't have a camera yet. And I got Jim Cotner as a cameraman who was the loader on Jaws and a very smart guy. And uh, so we started shooting with this, he called it ultra, ultra jam because the camera would jam. And so we had Aeroflex make us new cameras, 3D in England. And so then we had to reshoot a week of what we did with the old cameras. And, uh, and then I had a producer who thought that he could tell the director what to do uh, all the time. And, and I remember getting uh, Scott Maton, who was about six foot five as my first assistant. I said, when the producer comes on the lot, just keep him away from me. So anyway, it was, I was very fortunate. Uh, Leah Thompson was very, very cute. I found it. It was, uh, it was a good group. It was, it was fun to make. I love my camera crew. Uh, but it was so difficult, Chris, and we see the dailies and getting the convergence right and going, oh my God, uh, you know, with the, the glasses and, uh, and then, uh, well, that's an, that's an interesting point when you were making some of these shots with this camera and, uh, you know, again, I'm, I, I use layman stuff from documentaries and everything else that I watch. So obviously I'm an idiot when it comes to actual filmmaking, but I know you guys like pr pretty much watch a, f uh, a playback or feedback on like a little monitor. Did you have to watch them with the 3d glasses on? Yeah. You yeah. That even worked right. Yeah. That was, I've got to tell you, that's when monitors still happen. Prior to that, Jaws, Close Cut, we didn't have a monitor to see we would see what we shot in the dailies. Right. But when the monitors come, you can look and say, well, that's not a good, let's do it again, you know? So that, that would happen in the early 80s. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it was uh, insane trying to get the 3D. The, the problem I'll have, I didn't have, I didn't have Final Cut. I was a hired director. Right. So I cut the movie the same length as Jaws 1 and 2, about two hours. Right. Landsberg felt he could make more money if he had five screenings a day than four. So he cut 25 minutes out of my cut. Oh. So when you look at Jaws 3 and you think some of the criticism said that I expedited it too much. I did. I had a lot of fun with Leah, you know, and John Pudge and Dennis Quaid. And I had the relationships. Uh, he cut a lot of that. So he just went, you know. So I, I have to say that I'm, I'm happy the movie, I got criticized heavy for it, but the movie made a lot of money. You know, I mean, it was very successful financially. And I must say, to this day, I still have people, you know, that uh, love that movie. So, but it was a difficult experience, Chris, you know, and then the disappointment to see the final cut and you say, oh my God, because directors, to have any strength, you have to have final cut. Well, with today's day and age in movies, uh, with a lot of movies where, where a lot of things were cut or maybe didn't uh, come out to the, the director's vision, uh, case in point say for the sake of argument like the star wars special editions or or 
if you want more modern times, like the Zack Schneider cut or the uh, 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 Dahmer cut of uh, of Superman. I mean, uh, couldn't you one day turn around and release a Joe Alves cut of, of Jaws? Yeah, I could if I if I had if I had it, you know, I, you know, and in three D, uh, because I, yeah, another twenty five minutes. And uh, so people ask me about that. I think I do have uh, a real thirty five millimeter somewhere. I just. But you know, I went on to do other things, and uh, and then uh, the directing, uh, you know, was more difficult. Uh, I did uh, quite a bit of second unit directing uh, and designing. Uh, Starman, I, I I did a, a second unit on that. I with love Starman. That yeah. was that was one of my mother's favorite movies growing up. Really? Oh yeah, Jeff Bridges. I understand he's just got cancer. He's Oh. It was on the news, that, but he's was a doing right. wonderful, wonderful guy. Before uh, Starman, uh, I did. I worked with John Carpenter on Escape from New York. Okay, yes, yes. And that was a wonderful crew. Dean Cundy was just an incredible cameraman. We shot stuff at night. That was so great. In other words, some of the films I see that are dark, you can't see anything. And right. yet he created the darkness, and yet you could see the characters, you know, and where they're going. And so it's it's like, uh, given the atmosphere that this is night, but you don't make it so black that you can't see anything. And and I thought the photography uh, in Escape from New York was incredible, you know. Oh, absolutely. You it's know, first time it's one of those films that still hold up. It was a funny. Uh, I, I must say this. Uh, the reason I did that show is, is I was going to do another movie. I think it was probably the race movie and I got back and they canceled that. And the week later, my father died and I was, you know, all distraught. And my agent, Phil Gersh, said, Joe, you got to go back to work. You got to, I don't care. You got to go design a movie or something. And I've got this young people, uh, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, who I represent. And they did Halloween and the fog, and I'd like you to meet them. So um, I said, okay. And now there's this, it's their big movie. They were doing a huge movie, six million dollars. Well, of course, I had done Close Encounters. That went like twenty-five million. At that time, it was a lot of money. Right. So I met with them, and uh, I had a great relationship with Deborah Hill. She was a real go-getter. Yeah, we're going to do this. John was sort of laid back. Oh yeah, okay, well, you know, uh, but it worked out quite well because I, you know, I'm just very enthusiastic. You know, we got to make this. We got to shoot this. You know, we went to New York and we got on top of the train. Oh, this is New York. We can't shoot New York. Anyway, uh, we got to find a bridge and I got to build a wall. Anyway, we found a bridge in St. Louis, and then we found an old a section of downtown that they were redoing it. And so uh, I said, this could be New York. This looks like bad New York. So it, it worked out so well to shoot, you know, St. Louis and New York. And I just had things happen that were, you know, the crew was, was incredible. And I was so pleased, I say, with Dean Gundy's photography. So that was, that was a good experience. And so then I did, uh, then I did Jaws 3. And then John asked me, to design uh, Star Wars. And I said, no, I still really want to pursue direct. He said, would you come, come on and be visual consultant and uh, direct all the second unit? And so that's how that trans, you know, transformed awesome. into that. And that was a, a good experience too. Now, it's safe to say with your, with your catalog of, of history of, of film, whether it be dealing with the special effects department, producing, uh, uh, directing, or whatever, you have spent a lot of time in the uh, fantasy genre, for lack of a better term, meaning like thriller, horror, slash uh, science fiction area. Out of all your catalog, what is some of the best, uh, your your mo most favorite uh, areas to work in? Like, where where do you feel that you were allowed to expand the most of your imagination and vision? Well, let me say this: uh, when I was breaking into to art direction, you know, I, I, and I had been an assistant art director. Uh, fortunately, I worked with Alfred Hitchcock nice. on Torn Curtain, and so I learned a lot watching Hitchcock. Uh, 
and I found it very interesting. We would build half sets for Hitch because he knew what he wanted. He didn't wait for the set to be built and say, oh, this angle, this angle. He knew, you know, he told me one time, the other art director was away and he called me, Piggy, called, his assistant called me and says, Joe, I want you to build a staircase. And Mr. Newman runs down the staircase and Mr. Whitlock's going to put a, a painting here. And then Mr. Newman comes over to, to the registration desk and leaves. And I said, okay, Mr. Hitchcock, what about the reverse shot? What about the, no, no, no. You just build what I said. And then I built a staircase and I built a desk and, and that was it. Right. Uh, with, with John Carpenter, I escaped from New York because we had such a low budget. We couldn't even afford a soundstage. I just built a section of a set and there was a thing was walking down in New York. And if you panned over, we shot it out in the desert. There'd be a cactus, a cactus here, you know? So John was very conservative, you know, on how he worked. But anyway, probably when I became an art director and I did night gallery, uh, three seasons of night gallery, I used to do like 25 sets a week. Okay. I mean, it was just incredible. And so we, the director uh, would give me a stack of scripts and, and say, how many sets you could design that we could use the same episode, different episode and redo it. So I would say, you know, and then we would find things like we had a, a creepy thing when uh, Vincent Price walks down the staircase, you know, so you search around, you find a staircase and you see what you could do with it. Mm -hmm. so, so that's probably was the most interesting at my time is to do all these sets, you know, uh, coming up with different ideas, uh, quite different than doing a movie where you have a lot of time. I mean, you sit down and you start sketching out the sets that's going to shoot next week, you know, and, uh, so Night Gallery was uh, a big, a, a, a big influence on uh, how my career went. I imagine, and again, I could be completely wrong here, but I imagine, especially with partition set uh, uh, sets and 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 all that, I imagine like a lot of it came down to building two, three blank walls and then putting in the decorations or or the staircases or the reception desk for one shot, and then once the shot's done, you break those off. The walls are still there, but you break those off and you put up. Uh, a different temporary wallpaper and, and, you know, different things to be able to set. Is that some of the ways you cheated, especially well, for a show for three seasons? In, when I was doing Night Gallery, you got to realize it was a big studio. Okay. And they saved, they didn't tear sets down. All the important things, fireplaces, window units, they would put it into stock units. The following is an important message from the Nurses Guild of Florida. We know COVID has many scared. Many of our seniors are even afraid to go to the doctors. Just the thought of being exposed to all the people in the waiting room, in addition to the doctor's staff, is a risk many don't want to take right now. However, putting off health care makes most conditions worse. The Nurses Guild has the solution. One that exposes you to just one person. Call your doctor's office and have them order a nursing assessment from the Nurses Guild. We are a five-star Medicare home health agency. Your registered nurse in full PPE will perform a full head-to-toe assessment, vital signs and medication review, pulse oximetry, even an EKG if needed. Lab work and x-rays can also be done at home. Our registered nurse will discuss all of this strictly and directly with your doctor and get you results. All of our nurses and home health aides are fully screened, supervised, and COVID tested. Call the Nurses Guild today to arrange your home health visit at 954-596-9806 in Broward County and 561-826-8937 in Palm Beach County. Remember, health care put off is health care too late. Stay safe during the pandemic. Wear a mask and insist those around you wear a mask, wash your hands frequently, and stay home as much as possible. So if you wanted a Victorian window unit, quite often you just went and found it and put it together, and then they would strike it. Uh, in a case like I did uh, uh, the Caterpillar, it was an interesting uh, set, we supposed to be Barneo, and, and that was uh, Lawrence Harvey. And I, I did that. And then for sequences later, for another show, I would change the architecture a little bit and repaint it. I did that many times, you know. So you would, yeah, redo the structure or bring in a stock unit 
And, but today they destroy all these things. I did, you know, a thing for Geronimo and it was for Columbia. And I had this incredible doors with, you know, with these uh, incredible notches and stuff in it. And after we, we were wrapping, they were breaking it. And I said, you're not saving those doors? No, no, we throw this stuff away. And so that's so, it's so wasteful, you know, because those are great doors that somebody could use some other time, you know? Right. But it, things have changed. Uh, but, but yeah, when you do, but now on features, you know, uh, you pretty well, uh, let's see, Fire Down Below was a, a lot of work. That was a, a movie uh, with, uh, and um, we did that one in uh, Louis, no, that wasn't Louis, that was in, in Georgia. And um, we had to build a whole, Steven Seagal was the actor. Right. And Stephen was a little difficult. In other words, I've heard uh, that. No, this was in, in Kentucky. And I remember in Kentucky, these mountains, and they get all the, they remove all the trees and they sell the lumber and then they put grass and then they have cattle up there. Anyway, I found a beautiful empty mountain and I built a cabin up there. Okay. Uh, Mark Hemingway was the, the actress there. And so it's, it's very, very green. But in Kentucky, if you wait too long, it gets red and yellow. I mean, it just changes. So we were limited on time. And we had a seven for eight call. And the director would be waiting for Seagal. And he wouldn't show up. So he started directing with his, his double, you know, to go here and there. And he'd show up about 11 o'clock. And uh, no, I want to, don't want to do it that way. And that's the way it went. And I said, boy, if we keep doing this, that green up there is going to be yellow. Right. And then there was a sequence uh, in a uh, casino. Okay. And so we figured, you know, he just watched it. We, we could do it in a casino. Oh, no. I'm not going to go in a casino with folk smoke from other people. I had to build a casino. I literally spent a million dollars to build this one big casino with all this stuff. And I had this special room that it was mirrored in the walls, you know, so complicated, you know. Right. But uh, that was Stephen. Oh, I remember the night before there was a, a bar and uh, on the bar was a stage, but there was a, a back bar with, with the, uh, uh, you know, bartender. Right. So this is uh, late afternoon. Or he says, oh, I, I don't want the bartender back there. I want the stage to come right up to, the, you know, the bar. I said, but I'd have to rebuild it. Yeah, I guess so. So we spent all night rebuilding it. And in the, in the movie, he just sort of walks by and waves at the guy singing. So that's the kind of stuff you put up with sometimes, you know. Is that, is yeah. that a rare thing, though, just getting a temperamental actor once in a while? Well, that was Steven time. Seagal, yeah. Yeah, yeah Steve, Steven pretty well controls things. Yeah, most actors, I've worked with some really good actors, and they're, they're yeah. I mean, uh, Paul Newman is just the greatest, you know, and, right. and people like that. So uh, they, they do what they do. I mean, in other words, uh, Seagal was doing a, a scene with some actor, I can't remember his name, but an old actor, been around. And Seagal, he started giving the lines and the actor says, I'm doing the lines that I was given. And Seagal didn't remember the lines, you know. Right. So, yeah, you do have that. That does, you know, it can be effective sometimes uh, on how you approach things. But anyway, getting back. Well, with to, the with the striking down, with the striking down and destroying of of some props and and scenes and stuff like you, like you were saying with the doors, for example, those with those really beautiful doors, how often have somebody turned around and like, look, instead of destroying it, can I take it home and install it on my house? I mean, these are good doors. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I think that's that's done sometimes. You know, I have a table. It was um, stainless steel, and uh, it, it's probably three by five feet, all stainless. And it was a table that Rock Hudson did uh, operations on a movie called Embryo. Okay. And so that's in my shop. I use, <laughs> I've been using that one for 
40 years, you know. So yeah, yeah they're good. Because that was an independent studio and they were striking everything. So I said, well, I'll take that. I'll take that, you know. And uh, yeah, that's what you could do. You could take it home. And and uh, studios didn't greet out and it's like, oh, we're going to destroy it. But if you want to take it, uh, you got to give me a hundred bucks. No, they, no, they just want It's just going to be destroyed. So while they're destroying it, you just take it, you know. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. What other uh, memorabilia from, from your career do you have uh, from from previous sites? Like, do you have one of Bruce's teeth? <laughs> well, oh, look, here, here's what I have. You, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I have, I have saved you know i did uh on jaws i was save uh all my storyboards right and i even saved little notes what was interesting here let me see if i oh here's the thing this is interesting why would i save this that is a notepad okay all right and that's when i was scouting jaws and every t little town i went with i mean no i saved that i saved this is my script breakdown that's how we used to do it on yellow paper okay and i saved all these things because i just put them in a footlocker never felt they would be valuable but this is all the old original storyboards i mean illustrations before the storyboards okay and i saved that stuff uh i have the the windmill that was on top of quinn's shed okay. and uh we have of course a lot of the shark's teeth because roy abergast who made the the shark uh all the skins and the teeth he's got the molds so what would happen is we had the shark people would steal the teeth <laughs> you know, pull the teeth and so he have to replace them. So we would do shows and he would make copies of that. We had to use rubber teeth when Shaw is in the shark's mouth because we, you know. I wondered, I wondered if it was rubber. Yeah, or so we, he put rubber, just, yeah, soft teeth. Uh, but yeah, but he still has those molds. And there are collectors uh, all over that, uh, uh, Collect, you know, I didn't even think about it. You know, here's the point. It's like uh, you do a movie, you have all this stuff, and you don't think it's going to be worth anything later. The reason, in fact, I actually gave some of my drawings away. Later, people uh, were getting divorced, and they said, oh, you want these back? And now they're worth thousands of dollars, each original, because I sell the copies. You know, right. I told you I sell the copies on the, my thing here. Right. So, uh, yeah, it, it was just fortunate I saved it. And I was talking to a collector today. And it's just amazing how much stuff they used to throw away because they never thought it would be worth anything. You know, why somebody kept the red slippers? I don't know. You know, it was, it, it, I'll tell you why. Probably because it was a studio, MGM, and that just went back into... Start storage, you know, uh, all right. they wouldn't throw the costumes away. They would save it for another picture. Uh, but the the drawings and stuff like that, years later, uh, I remember them at the, going back to the studio and seeing somebody there and they were dumping all the old drawings. I said, that's the, the drawings to the Frankenstein uh, sets. Oh, nobody cares about this stuff, you know. And of course, they they do now but. well of course you know movie buffs and and collectors galore i've got to ask you with with the catalog of movies that you've done and you've done a lot of great you've written in, in a sense you've written a lot of people's childhoods or, or early 20s and stuff of that nature looking back on all of them now how many of these these timeless movies like close encounters like jaws like you know escape from new york how many of them do you look back now and go wow I never saw that coming. Like you never thought they would stand the test of times that they do now. You know, when you're working, you know what you want is the next job. Right. You know, and so as a, as a designer after Jaws, uh, Stephen didn't have anything. Uh, he, oh yeah, we went skiing while he was cutting that and he was going to do bingo long and his traveling all-stars. And, uh, 
Then you start talking about watch the sky. And Alan Hynek spoke about UFOs. I said, oh, that sounds like a more interesting project. He says, I don't have a deal, you know. Uh, so then I went and I did Embryo and then he got a deal and then we did Close Encounters. So basically, you're struggling through. Uh, Sugarland didn't do that well, pop, you know. Jaws was such a difficult thing. When we got back, the studio was really upset with us. We, we were over budget, over schedule, and uh, they sold the boat, right? The Orca. They just dumped the sharks, and uh, then they had a screening in Texas. And Stephen came to me. He says, "Joe, I got four screams. I could get another scream if I could get the head coming out of the hull, you know. And I also want to see." The boat splitting has shown me the way to go home. And so I did that in my garage. I built the hulls. Right. And uh, with the help from a friend. And they stole the head out of the makeup department. He got a cameraman. We did, we shot it in Vernafield Swinkle. The studio didn't have a clue that we were doing this. Which, by the way, I hate you guys for that, because that's the one scene that even as a kid haunted me. <laughs> I got to tell you, I got to tell you. Uh, so the studio didn't know we did this. And there, you know, like there's Jaws, dailies can't be Jaws, the Jaws is finished. Well, they saw it and then on the next screening was in California, uh, in Lakewood. And they didn't, well, here's a fall, let me, let me just say this quickly. When the shark worked, it made a lot of noise. Right. So when Steven said cut, the crew would laugh. <laughs> that silly shark makes such weird noise. My feeling was the audience is going to laugh. I mean, I think we did a good job. I think the movie's good, but I'm afraid they're going to laugh at the shark. Right. And so I got to tell you, they didn't laugh. You know, they screamed. And, and at that time, the studio executives, Lou Wasserman, they were turned, blown away. They didn't realize they had a movie of such importance. And they re, uh, restructured the distribution from a few theaters to 450, which was huge at that time. Right. But in any case, to answer your question, when you do these things, you don't realize, wow, it's a big success. And, and being on a payroll thing, you don't make a lot of money, you, you know, you get scale. I got to tell you, after Jaws, after making scale on Close Encounters, I got an agent and then I made four times that. You know, you just double. And, uh, and so uh, as it goes, Jaws it was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this was going to be such a big thing. And then Close Encounters, Close Encounters was supposed to be released before Star Wars, but through a lot of uh, very difficult uh, optical effects. It took longer. So we got delayed to November. And I think that really affected Star Wars coming out and making such a big bang. Right. So Close Encounters was quite a different movie. I mean, it was a very emotional film. You know, the little boy and uh, Melinda Dillon and Dreyfus going up. And let me just tell you this. Today, they would do that in, in green screen. But when Melinda Dillon and, and Dreyfus climb up the hill to look over at this big set, I built a, a, a seven-story mountain on rollers that we did right. in front of a projection screen that was 125 feet. It was totally different, you know, than it is today. And recently, uh, Stephen did something for me because uh, I had an award. Uh, from the art directors, and, and he did a little video, and he said, to this day, that set was the biggest set he's ever worked on, you know? Right. You know, it was a football field wide and a football field and a half long, 450 feet. So, as your success happens, your confidence happens, and people have more confidence in what you're going to do. So, after Jaws, Close Encounters went from a little they wanted a, a little sci-fi movie to this, wow, maybe these guys could do something big. And so it just grew. So then a, a, after Close Encounters and it was Jaws 2 and, the thing, 
And so then you, you just sort of roll along and uh, you look for another, another job, you know, and that's, uh, and then now looking back after all these years, uh, it was pretty amazing. I, I was very fortunate this year to get the uh, art directors gave me a lifetime achievement award and, That's you awesome. know, Congratulations. Yeah, and uh, Greg Nicotero introduced me and I didn't know this, but the studio got Spielberg to make a, a video okay. about, and they had all this stuff that I, cuts of the stuff I did. But you know, Chris, I mean, it's, time has passed and that's what I did. And you feel very happy that you've done it. Um, but I don't think it really affects your ego. The ego is, do I get the next job? And right. when I get the next job, what can I do with it? You know, and uh, how much leeway will I have? You know, and hopefully you work with good people. Well, I, I would imagine, like, a, like I said, you know, um, I used to be a former musician and, and of course you, uh, as, as a musician, nine times out of 10, your focus is I want that one hit song. I want that one song that'll resonate and then, you know, build from there. Your career is like a greatest hits album. And, you know, so the question was basically like, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, wow, I'm surprised that this movie did what it did or that movie turned out the way that it did, or this movie is still, as beloved and received as it was when it released, you know what I mean? But that was the meaning for the question. But I mean, overall, I can't think of anybody more deserving of a lifetime achievement award. Again, you it was nice. You know, it's interesting looking back. Uh, I, I, well, Fire Down Below, the one with Seagal, I did some of my best sets. It was incredible. I mean, I did this casino. I did this beautiful little cabin up in the thing. I, I just did one set after the other and never got any mention about it because it was a Steven Seagal movie. Right. And, and also, I ended up, my last two movies were animated movies. I went back to production designing the thing called uh, uh, Sinbad, Beyond the Veil. And it was Indian movie and I went to India three times. Uh, and that was sort of interesting because I was back to drawing again. As right. a designer, you, you don't do as much because you got all these people working for you. So I was drawing and it was, oh, this felt back like when I was 19, you know, drawing at Disney. But there's something else that happened that was weird is after I directed Jaws 3, you know, a lot of, I had a hard time getting some jobs sometimes because directors didn't want a designer that already directed a movie. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because they would be, he's looking over his shoulder, you know, he, he doesn't like the way I'm doing that shot. What, you know, I mean, it, 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 I did, you know, I, I did, so I didn't work for a while. Taylor Hackford, I, I started working for him. I enjoyed Taylor and then I, I went on, but it, it was more difficult as I got later in my career, the young directors wanted young people. And certainly if they were just starting out, they didn't want somebody who already directed, uh, you know, a movie that was successful, you know, that'd so. be the opposite. And again, I'm not, I'm, by no means a director, but I would imagine if I was doing a film for the sake of argument and, and, you know, I'm putting together my, my crew and everything else. I think I would want somebody with your experience and your vision, regardless of you, whether you direct it or not, especially as an up and coming uh, director rather than, Oh, I want the young crew because I think, you know, the young crew want to take chances that may or may not work. You know, what works. Yeah. But maybe <laughs> they don't want to be influenced that much, you know? Right. So, Anyway. Well, right on. Well, the big thing, obviously, now we got to talk about is after, after all is said and done, now you're, uh, now you've written a book and are well, all. I didn't write it. Dennis Prince wrote it. All right. And Greg Nicotero, who does The Walking Dead, uh, he did the forward. Okay. The Titan has, uh, it's got some, these are the early illustrations based on the galley sheets. That is terrifying. <laughs> all that, and it shows, uh, let me see if I could, uh, it, you know, how the shark was made. You see the, the skeleton, the wood, see how, so yeah. it goes into great detail. If, if you're interested in, in how the movie was made, uh, uh, I mean, this, this has got every detail. Uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, let's see, 
anyway, it, it goes into detail. It has, oh, here, here, here's the page I'm looking for. I did this sculpture. This is about four feet. And I worked with an ecthiologist, Leonard Campagno from okay. San Francisco. And he came down and worked with me. So we got it right exactly like how a white shark should be. And this is a measurement of a 12 foot shark. And he said that the sharks are perfect at 12 feet. When they get bigger, they get girthier, they get fat. Right. So we didn't want a fat shark. So we doubled that 12 foot to about 25 feet. And so that's the book. And then th this is uh, Joel's movieart.com. Right. See, uh, and uh, it's WW. Yeah, you got that. Anyway, what I sell here are copies of the storyboards and illustrations. And they're not that very expensive, you know. So that's what I'm doing. Now, my, my writer, uh, we wrote another book uh, on Close Encounters. But we had a lot of trouble with uh, Sony because they didn't want us to do this and that. So, uh, and and they didn't even own the, it was it was it was uh, war, uh, it was uh, uh, Columbia Studios that we did it for. But then they bought Columbia, so they take an attitude of uh, you know everything is ours. And I had pictures of Spielberg and and uh, Vilmos Zygmunt, the cameraman, that I just took our personal. No, they wanted it all. So anyway, we published that. It, it didn't go too well. Uh, Universal was far more cooperative and Spielberg was very cooperative. I mean, I got pictures with him, so there's no problem. And he's working right now on a, a bio starting when uh, when I was born, but, but basically going through the studio system and uh, working at Disney's and, and then going to Fox and MGM and all these various studios then finding a home at Universal and then doing the, the various things. And, and so what I like about the the, uh, the bio is not so much that it focuses on me, but it focuses on that time. Right. 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, and 80s and, and the transition with these various directors, you know, Hitchcock, Spielberg, John Carpenter, Taylor Hackford, what have you. And, and, and so that's in the process right now. So we keep busy, and and as a hobby, I uh, I do sculpting. You know, I do. I've got seven hundred, seven seventy different sculptures. I started doing mermaids, okay. and a woman came to interview me, and they're like big, and she says, "Oh, the the softer side of jaws, you know, mermaids." <laughs> that's the next. Anyway, thing. that's pretty much it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's busy, and I I do these interviews and stuff occasionally. Right on. Well, in case I didn't, uh, there's a question I didn't ask that maybe one of our listeners want to listen to. Um, at this point, I would ask if there's a, a way people can contact you, social media, something like that, where they could uh, maybe ask your question or, or uh, as you said, with the book, uh, I assume the book is uh, available pretty much at Barnes Noble, Amazon. Well, it's out on Amazon. Yeah. And it's like $26 on Amazon. So it's not okay. over. And it's a hard cover. We made a soft cover because a couple of years ago, uh, we did a uh, Catalina Island, the museum did a, a show, uh, six months of Jaws stuff. And I had my drawings and Greg Nicotero had characters that he made and the shark and we had all that stuff. So we did a book, a smaller book and uh, sold it there. And then uh, Titan got interested. And so then they published the bigger hardcover uh, with all the drawings. And uh, so that's it. Uh, uh, I guess uh, that's about it. I don't know what questions people would ask. I don't know if I should give my email. I might end, end up with too many. Oh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that. I didn't know if you had like maybe a Facebook account that somebody could. Uh... Uh, no, not really. Okay, well, not a problem. Uh, well, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on. This has been an absolute honor and treat. I certainly had to delay three times or two times. How you feeling, by the way, the last time we I'm talked? I'm good, but you know, that's interesting. When I was supposed to have the tooth, it was a, an implant that came loose and had to be done. So they, they shot me up and I thought, well, I'll be all right to talk. Well, it's a good thing because it was swell and I was, it took like a whole day to get rid of it. So it was a good thing we didn't do it. 
I, I imagine the last time I went, the last time I had to have surgery or uh, not surgery, but something dentally done, I was so out of it by the end of it. I, that that was my first thought when you're like, maybe I could still try. I'm like, no, no, take your time. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Yeah, because it was, it just drained me. You know, whatever they shot me up with. Anyway, it's good because this worked out, I think, fine for me. All right, cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on, guys. Uh, sir, um, guys, if you enjoyed this episode in any capacity, hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And, of course, if you prefer them in audio-only format, we have you covered. Just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. Again, I want to thank you very, very much, Mr. Joe Alves, for coming on and talking to me. It's uh, uh, again, it, it, it's an extra special thing. It's one of the pleasures I get from doing these, uh, doing these podcasts, and and especially since I've hooked up with uh, Steve Joiner, uh, to be able to sit down to talk to people that are, for for lack of a better term, are my childhood heroes. And <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Part part of the reasons I do what I do, whether it was in pro wrestling and music, or even now with podcasting, is because of guys like you who who kind of broke through. You know, forgive the pun here, but broke the fourth wall and created what we know as as you know entertainment today. So thank you so much for coming on. Okay, my pleasure. Take Ab care. Absolutely, and guys, I will catch you on the next breaking the fourth wall. <laughs>